Jesus, thank you so much for the chance that we get, Lord, to hold your words inspired by your spirit given to us in our very hands and to dig into them is such a priceless privilege. We pray, Lord, that we would love the truth about Jesus and be transformed by the truth about Jesus and that as we walk in this book of Ephesians, that you would lead us to be a gospel-formed people. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible uh, and you haven't got it open yet, please feel free to do that. Now we're in Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one to follow along with, there's a stack of them on that drum back there. And there's also a stack of them up on a shelf over there, uh, which is actually smaller than usual, which means that people are using them, which is great. Uh, Or we've lost Bibles. Either way. Now, question for you. What makes a good church? This, this, is a, this is a question that I know that there are a stack of opinions in this room on. I'm, I'm sure there are. Like, it, you don't get a church that's existed for more than two weeks without opinions on what makes a good church. Um, you don't get a church that's existed ever without that. One answer people might give um, is the teaching. We, we, we were a part of a church for ages where nine out of ten people asked, oh, how did you end up being a part of this church? The answer would be, oh, I came because the teaching was so good, you know, and I love the teaching, you know, the teaching. The teaching, the teaching, the teaching. Um, Another one might be the friendships, the relationships, the community, the the fellowship. I I love the the fellowship of our church, uh, that we we have such close bonds of friendship with all these people here. It's such a beautiful thing. The music, um, a surprisingly common answer to the question of what makes a good church or why do you go to your church is I love the music, you know. Um, oh, they just sing it, they don't sing it too loud, or they don't sing it too quiet, or they don't sing those awful slow songs, or they don't sing those awful, you know, fast songs, or, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of diversity on that little spectrum in there. Um, well, this week, uh, we come into Ephesians chapter 4, and, and we come to Paul's answer to the question, and by implication, God's answer to the question, because it's in the Bible, what makes a church healthy? What makes a church good? Uh, this week, yeah, like I said, we're moving into Ephesians chapter 4. And if you've been with us, you'll remember that, that Ephesians, or if you've just got a passing knowledge of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians has this structure of two parts. The first three chapters are our gospel truth section, where Paul has just really d- taken that 30,000-foot that view of the truths of salvation that speak to us. Uh, he's talked about the centrality of Jesus in everything and the blessedness of his people as the recipients of his grace. Uh, There's so much that we've seen. You can go through the first three chapters of Ephesians and find literally dozens of times that he uses the phrase in Christ to describe all of the beautiful gospel truths that are true for us in him. Uh, But critically, one thing I want to highlight for you in those chapters is that he's given us two mysteries. Um, I don't know if you picked up on that, but in chapter 1 and chapter 3, he gave us a mystery. In chapter 3, he talked to us about the mystery that Jesus is the one, and these are mysteries in Christ still. Jesus is the one in whom the Gentiles, that's us unless you happen to be Jewish and joining us this morning, that the Gentiles are being brought in and becoming full heirs to the promises of God. Adopted children, redeemed through his blood, being filled with all the fullness of God. We saw that a little bit in chapter 2 and more fully in chapter 3 there. Uh, and, and that mystery really is that, that God is building a church from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then the great 
mystery back in chapter 1 was that Jesus is the one in whom the whole creation, the entirety of the cosmos will be summed up. The point of everything, without exception, is Jesus. He is the purpose of creation. Everything will find its meaning and its purpose in him. And then, and then we get to chapters 4 to 6. And chapter 4 to 6, which is, we're starting on today, is gospel applied. He doesn't leave the gospel behind. He bring, begins to bring it in to bear on more specific areas for us in our lives. Uh, how do we live in response to this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, now, we haven't said this yet, but, but you know, I've, I've mentioned this structure of 1 to 3, 4 to 6 several times throughout this series so far. Some of you are probably bored of it. Some of you might have gone, well, how can I know that that's the structure of the book, John? You're just telling me that. Here's, here's a fun way of knowing it. Chapter 1 to 3 do you guys know what an imperative is? An imperative is a word that's used to command someone to do something. Um, you could say a command, perhaps. Uh, but it's a type of verb, right? And, and we've had, in chapters 1 to 3, one imperative the whole time. It's been remember has come up once. And, and aside from that, there's been no commands. No, do this, do this, do this. Sometimes when we translate it into English, they come across a bit more imperatively. But, but in the original language, there's one imperative in all those chapters. In the last three chapters... 40 imperatives, 40 commands to do things. So if that, you know, if it weren't convinced before, be convinced now. So he's going into how do we live when we know that in Jesus, God is bringing us into full salvation to be fellow heirs in the kingdom of God. How do we live when we know the mystery that in Jesus, God is going to sum up all things? What does that do to our lives? When we know that the purpose of everything is the man who died on the cross, rose from the tomb, reigns from heaven, and is soon to return. How does that change us? How do we live? And what we'll see is the working in of a new and specific way of a principle which we have, have discussed already a couple of weeks ago. Um, the principle which we discussed a few weeks ago was this. Gospel transformation happens when we increasingly trust the truth about Jesus as it applies to every part of our lives. You want to know how to be transformed? This is the answer. You don't want to know how to, how to walk as a Christian? This is the answer. Gospel transformation happens as we increasingly trust the truth about Jesus as it applies to every part of our lives. That arose, if you don't remember, back in chapter 2, where it ended with Paul describing the people of God, the church, uh, as a temple which is actively being built as his dwelling place uh, as we live in him. So as we are found in Christ, then we are being built up to be his people. We are being transformed. And then last week, the keen observer would have noted that this principle rose its head again, actually. As Paul prayed at the end of chapter 3, uh, my dad got to preach one of my favourite passages of the whole Bible last week, and so I'm just stealing a bit of it back here. Um, when we got to the end of chapter 3 where Paul prayed, he prayed that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, so how do we get our lives filled with God? How do we grow in godliness and in the likeness of Christ? We know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We understand the truth of the gospel, which we will never finish digging into. 
never reach the full depths of because it surpasses knowledge. It cannot be fully known. We grow in knowing what cannot be fully comprehended. And it, and it also surpasses knowledge because it doesn't just stay in our heads, you see. And that's why Paul prayed that we would have strength to know the love of Christ. Because as my old lecturer, Alan Stanley, said, and Dad quoted last week as well, um, when Jesus moves in, he rearranges the furniture. Uh, he, he comes in and he brings transformation. It's a part of being a Christian. It's a necessary part of being a Christian. And it can be a painful part of being a Christian. And it's a glorious part of being a Christian. But it takes strength to know his love. Because we, as we know his love, we're changed by it. He changes us and for the better. But do you, do you see that principle at work there? Is it, is it relatively clear? He prays that we would know the love of Christ, understand the truth of God's love in the truth about Jesus, and so be filled with the fullness of God, which means both to fully have him and to fully display him with our lives. Increasingly trusting the truth about Jesus as it applies to every part of our lives and so being transformed by the gospel. And now verse 1 of chapter 4 Verse 1 of chapter 4 is basically a title for the remaining chapters of this book. Uh, Paul says this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you see it even there, actually? Overall, this application section of the letter will call us to live out our calling of salvation. Call us to live out the gospel truth of what has happened in us. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And, and the remainder of this passage is, is how this works out in the body of the church today. So, so that's what we're looking at today is how does this work out? How does this gospel transformation by the truth of Jesus work out within the body of the church? Uh, and, and verses 1 to 6, they call us to walk in gospel-reflecting unity. The first six verses are fairly clear. If we... If we fully trust the gospel, we will walk as a church in unity, unified by it. Paul says we're to have all, here's some, here's some easy words to say and hard words to apply, aren't they? We're to have all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he gives us the truth that undergirds that action. He says, we are one body, indwelt by one spirit, with one hope, one Lord, one baptism, and one God. Let me be clear about what Paul's saying here. He, he's not saying, be unified at all costs. Make sure you are unified at, at every cost. And, and, and that is, that's what it looks like to be a healthy church. There are denominations, there are churches that act like that is our duty. Uh, that are founded on that principle, in fact, of unity at all costs. And what that ends up with is churches that aren't willing to stand on truth. Um, many of us have experienced that ourselves. Um, and, and paradoxically, what it ends up with ultimately is division. Uh, when people, when someone finally goes, no, hang on, we can't, we can't cross that line. We can't, we can't be unified even if you, if, you, if you don't agree that Jesus was raised from the dead. We can't, that, that's not a place for us to be unified and it divides it's not, not a thing of unity at all. Unity at all costs brings division. No, he's saying, what he's saying is, be unified because you follow one God and so you are one 
people. Be unified in the truth of who your God is. Um, there's a, there's a, a metaphor that's been used a thousand times by a thousand people that I'm just going to steal here, uh, borrow, plagiarize? No. Um, with, you know, the, the pianos, right? Um, if you, if you want to tune a piano, you don't tune a piano by tuning it to the piano next to it. Uh, you tune a piano with a tuning fork. We're, we're not a people tuned by just going, hey, let's all be unified with each other. We're a p people unified, tuned, when we look to the tuning fork. We look to Christ. We look to the God that we follow and we know the truth about him and we're unified because he is one God, not many gods. You know, there's also another end to this extreme, you know, an another, end, another extreme to this that people and churches fall off of, which is thinking that unity is, is, is not what we're called to at all. You know, that, that, that happens a fair bit. You may or may not have experienced it. Um, I don't want to be rude. Some Christians, we live like uh, gossip is kind of uh, our, our Christian virtue, like, like division is something that we're made for. Um, like my will must be done. Uh, my understanding of every issue must be adhered to and I will divide the church to make it so. If you ever want a divisive little soundbite of mine to take out of context, that would be a great one. Uh, but that's not the unity that Paul is calling us to either. It pays to take a solid look at, at the interactions that you have with other Christians, doesn't it? At the way that you speak about other believers. Seriously, seriously, take this moment. Um, Take a moment this week and, and sit down and actually think to yourself, how do I tend to talk about other believers when they're not there? Or what, better still, what's my heart towards other believers? Now ask yourself this, put yourself against the list that, that Paul's just given us. Does the truth about Jesus drive me to humility and gentleness? Is that my heart disposition towards them? To patience, to bearing with them in in love, not in tolerance, in love. Let me, let me run that list again. Does, does the humility of Christ who left heaven to come down for you drive you to humility in your heart towards your fellow believers? Does the gentleness of Jesus who could have come in wrath but came to bring peace drive you to be gentle with your fellow believers? Does his patience with you again and again and again, and again, drive you to patience with your fellow believers? Does the way that he is bared with you in love, in such genuine, heartfelt, overwhelming love, drive you to bear with your brothers and sisters in love? Not in tolerance, not, not, in, not, in, not in just putting up with them, but in love like he has loved you when you deserve nothing of it. Am, am I eager isn't that a challenging word? Am I eager, Paul uses it there, to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Not just okay with maintaining the unity of the Spirit, but eager to. Or do I just tolerate those who are indwelt by the same Spirit, eternal God, that I am? Now, as we move into our second part of our passage, verses 7 to 16, we get a vision for how this unity is to grow and to flourish in a local church. How and what kind of unity are we to have? And, and this, this goes beyond just, just a call to Christian unity. You know, unity is really at the centre of it, but, but it, it really gives us what does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it mean to be doing it right as a church? And Paul starts out by saying that the unity is diverse. 
Isn't that a funny thing? Uh, he says, he says, he gave grace to each one. Jesus gave grace to each person in a varied way. Every Christian, this means, is gifted to the church. Every Christian is gifted to serve and to follow and to build up the body. We're going to go into that a little bit more in a minute. But then he quotes Psalm 68 uh, to say that the risen, the reigning Jesus has given gifts to his church for a purpose. And you know what's really interesting about what he does here is that Paul takes those two mysteries that we mentioned at the start, right? Uh, the, the mystery that the church of both Jew and Gentile is brought together. He is making a, a people ever of tribe and tongue and nation, the church, uh, and, and they are heirs and, uh, of the household of God. And the mystery that Jesus is the point of everything, that everything is summed up in him. And he puts them side by side and shows us that they are one and the same and are working out together in the church. Paul says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Those verses, those words confused me for ages. I was like, why does he even bother saying this? And yet it's so important. He brings the mystery of all things fulfilled in Christ into the dead center of a passage about the mystery of the church unified in Christ. He shows us how he is filling all things right here and now. And what he shows is that this is what is happening when the church grows healthily. So the growth of the church, the bringing in of the Gentiles, the, the people of every tribe, tongue and nation is the way in which right now Christ is filling all things. His, his fullness is going out through his body, the church. Peter O'Brien, one of the commentators on this, he, he had a wonderful line on this. He says, the church is his instrument in carrying out his purpose for the cosmos. You know, if you might have come to church this morning with the, with the sense that this is a relatively unimportant thing that you do in your week, um, that, that your life as a Christian is just kind of one of the bits and bobs in, in your week, and, and, and maybe you've just had your eyes opened. God, through you, is working out his purpose for the cosmos. Through, for the universe, in you, in us. Church, we stand in such a privileged position, don't we? And it's so important that we live out this reality, that we live in who we are. Because if we don't live in who we are, we'll fall into one of the many unhealthy ways to do the church, to be the church. Now, I don't want to spend super long in this lift, list of gifts uh, that he gives because it, it isn't the big point of the passage, um, but we do have to give a little bit of time to it. Uh, and there, there are a whole bunch of ways that people understand this list of gifts that, that Paul gives. Uh, and very often those, those ways that people understand it are informed more by their own understanding of the modern church than by what happens in the text here. But regardless of that, there's, there's a principle here that is vital and which we need to grasp if we're going to understand the whole of this passage, the whole message of what Paul's given to us here, what it means to be a healthy church. So, so briefly, I'm going to give you the list. We're going to talk a little bit about what it's talking about, and then we're going to talk about the broader principle. Uh, Jesus gave gifts to his church, and here Paul says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. That word shepherd there, it's actually the, the same word as pastor, um, and I'm just going to use that from here on in. Uh, 
And um, this is important things to say. This is not the only list of gifts in the New Testament that God has given. It's not an exhaustive list of gifts in the New Testament uh, because there's so many lists. None of them is comprehensive. And probably if you put them all together, God's given more gifts to his church. Not all of them are remarkable. You know, administration, actually, I take that back. Administration is listed as a gift somewhere else. Yeah, I think it's in Romans. Um, and, and to someone like me, that is remarkable because I look at it and I go, Lord, it, I, I could never were it not for your spirit's power. Um, but anyway, I, I, I digress. Um, but what is unique about this list of gifts is that everywhere else he gives a list of gifts that are given to people. So like the gift, gifts of healings or the gift of prophecy or gifts of tongues. Um, this lift, list, he, lifts, he lists the people. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. No, he gave gifts of prophecy and of apostleship and of evangelism. And, and what he's hammering there is that these gifts are given for the church around those people, not simply for themselves. And so, who are these people? And I'll, I'll try and keep it brief, I'll do my best. Apostles, right? There's, there's some important stuff we need to cover here. Um, there is a capital A sense in which the word apostle is used in the Bible. Um, that's how I'm going to separate these things. This is the office of apostle. Um, it's a thing that's used really consistently across the Gospels and across the book of Acts in particular uh, to, uh, about the 12, you know, plus Paul. And, and outside of that, it does not exist. Uh, it's consistently used there, uh, but it is no longer a thing today. There are some people who would disagree with me on this, but the Bible is really, really clear. Uh, if this was an ongoing office, we'd expect to see some mention of it being passed on. We see literally like, like, like dozens of passages in the Bible of new leaders being called in the churches. And never, ever, ever are they called to be an apostle after the apostles. In fact, Paul talks himself as the last of the apostles called in after his time. And so this, that is a thing that has finished. It required first-hand original experience with Jesus and more. It required having been hand-picked by Jesus for the role. It was a position of great authority in the early church. And there is no hint in Acts and no hint in the early church that this was ever passed on. The reason I hammer that a little bit is because there should be a really healthy high level of caution and wariness in you if someone ever introduces themselves to you as an apostle. Just, just popping that out there. Um, or if you, ever, if you ever pick up a book and flick over to the back cover and... and and, and you're reading the, the author blurb and it says such and such is a teaching apostle with such and such church and you go, here's the correct response. I don't mean to be too rude here, but you put that in the pile of ones that I want to know the, the opinions other than the ones that I trust. Like, you know, that's it's a good pile to have. Don't have it too tall. Um, however, having said all of that, there is a little a use of the word apostles. Um, the word apostle in the New Testament apostolos, if you really want to know. Uh, it just means a sent one. That's what, that's what the original Greek word means. It's, it existed before the New Testament, as all of the words did. Simple one. Um, you know, Philippians 2.25, we see it come up. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger. Now, the word messenger there is apostolos. It, it actually means your sent one, your apostle uh, to me and minister to my need. So the question is, does God still gift people today 
gift to the church people as, as sent ones, as starters of new works, uh, an apostolic-like gifting, sure. Sure he does. You know, it, it's actually the same word that we get missionary from. That once they translated it into Latin, it became missio. Um, but does he call authoritative officed apostles to the church today? No. No, he does not. No one should ever introduce themselves as an apostle. You might have an, 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 an apostolic, as in a sent gifting, uh, that you are sent for a specific work, um, but you don't have the authority of a New Testament apostle. You never will. Neither would I. Um, when Paul says he gave the apostles, I think he's primarily talking about this category. This is the one I'm hammering the most. Don't worry. I said I was going to be brief on the list, and now I'm being super long on the list, but the others are shorter. Um, he's mostly envisaging that first category, the big A apostles. But, but we may, uh, he may well be leaving room for both. Uh, second, he says prophets. And prophets, really similar to apostles in a lot of ways. Uh, where there used to be an office of the prophet in the Old Testament, which was an authoritative office, it's not a thing anymore. But at the same time, the Bible calls us to desire the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14 says, I want you to desire the gifts and especially the gift of prophecy. So there is still... By the Bible's account, a gift of prophecy today. And however you understand that, what it must include is speaking God's word into the church in a way that calls us toward faithfulness and away from disobedience, calls us in the direction of the gospel. Evangelists. Evangelists quite simply bring the good news of Jesus. I love the word evangelists. It just means a gospelizer. Um, quite often, we've assumed Evangelist means someone who just brings people to salvation. And that's certainly, obviously, a large part of what it means to gospelize. But that's based on a, a faulty understanding, if we think of that as the full description of that. A faulty understanding of the role of the gospel. The gospel is not just the entry point. It is the truth. Aren't we seeing this right now in this book? It is the truth by which we are sustained, the truth by which we are transformed. So evangelists, while they may emphasize reaching the lost, bring the message of the gospel in its clearest, simplest form. And then finally, shepherds and teachers. Uh, and I group them together because Paul does. Um, in, in the original language you got, he gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherd teachers, or, or prof, uh, pastor teachers. It's, it's, it, they're stuck together without a word in between like the others have. Um, and and uh, this is actually the only place in the entire New Testament where the word pastor as a noun is used. Um, fun fact. Uh, although in more than one place it's used as a verb elsewhere, and, it, and it's referring to the pastor teachers, uh, which rightly understood is the same thing as elder teachers. Um, the, the much more common word in the New Testament is elder. It's used many times, and, and a, a few times in Acts, in First Peter, you get elders commanded to pastor the church. So th those are synonymous roles in the New Testament. But, zooming out a little bit, do you see what these things have in common? These, these church leaders are core ministries of the gospel word. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are gifted in different ways to bring the gospel word. And the essential principle which we must get, which is so often either missed or is ignored, is that these people 
weren't, let me give it as a negative first, they weren't given to the church in order that they might do the work of ministry. Here's how people usually approach the church today. We approach it like there's a few who do ministry, this little group here, and there are many who support ministry, who have a, a supporting role of the ministry happening, you know. Um, here's, here's another way of wording that. So common, so wrong. We think that the people of the church are given to the leaders of the church to equip them for the work of ministry, which, if you notice, is exactly the opposite of what Paul says here. What you end up with is a ch church that's kind of like a phone tower, if you will. Uh, so, so all of the parts exist, like the ladders and the girders and the, 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 the wiry things and the pegs in the ground, and all of it exists to hold up the bit at the top that gets the signal out there, right? It's phone tower ministry. It's not biblical. Uh, what it looks like on the ground is a bunch of people who come on a Sunday and hear a sermon and they say, gosh, that was a good sermon. That guy has a good ministry. Or alternatively, gosh, that was a terrible sermon. That guy's got a rubbish ministry. Take your pick. You know, let me know which after the service, gently. But then, you know, after you've said that, you go. You have coffee, you talk football, because the ministry's done, right? We've experienced it. I've come, I came to get ministry, I got ministry, and now I'm done. We go home, we wait for next week's ministry. Maybe I go to a gospel community during the week, and at the gospel community, I go along to experience the ministry of the leaders of that group. We perpetuate this quite a lot, don't we? You know, we, we talk about such and such has had such a powerful ministry. And that's not wrong, but it's just not what the Bible defines ministry as here. Paul says, no. We need to wake up and regain the Bible's vision for the ministry of the everyday Christian. Because Paul says that they are the ones who do the essential ministry of the church. If you asked Paul, who in the church are the ministers of the church, he would have said, the church is the ministers of the church. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see, the Bible envisages ministry not as, not as the thing which a few do and many support, but as the thing which a few equip for and all do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to ministry. Congratulations. There you go. You're called to a ministry which is essential to the life of the church, which the church can't be healthy without. It's a ministry that builds up the body, Paul says. A ministry which causes us to be unified in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, Paul says. It's a ministry which protects us from the winds of false teaching, Paul says, and makes us steady in the truth, Paul says. It's a ministry which causes us all to grow into the likeness of Christ. And by implication, it's a ministry without which we can't do any of those things at all. I don't like grumpy preaching. I don't. It's not my thing. But I'm going to humor myself for a second here. I am dead sick of churches where we act like the ministry of the church is that a guy gets up and says something for half an hour on a Sunday and then it's done. 
Like, like that is the way that the world's going to be transformed. That is the way that Christ is going to fill the earth is by someone getting up and talking for half an hour in the week. Do you know how many half hours there are in a week? I didn't count beforehand because I'm doing this off the cuff. But lots. Ministry belongs in all of them. So what is this ministry which we're all called to? This service, if you're reading some of the translations there. Because Paul's got something specific in mind. Do you remember the big principle that we talked about right at the start? The big principle that, that we've been seeing hit us again and again in Ephesians. Gospel transformation happens when we increasingly trust the truth about Jesus as it applies to every part of our lives. Yeah? Yeah? Remember me saying that? Hope so. Now Paul defines the ministry in verses 15 and 16, and it's integrally tied to that principle. He says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, in whom, from whom, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church as a whole and individually grows in Christ-likeness and therefore healthiness. The people of the church become the image of Christ in the world. We grow up into Christ and they are gloriously unified when we speak the truth in love. Let's be clear on what he doesn't mean by that. Doesn't mean be honest, but don't be blunt. Tactful, but honest. That's not what he's saying. Honesty and tact, wonderful things, good things. If you don't have honesty and tact, I thoroughly encourage you, go and get them. At least one of those is indeed a Christian virtue. It's just not what Paul's saying. Paul is talking about the truth which his whole letter has been about so far. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, just a few verses later, he's going to specify that it's the truth that is in Jesus in verse 20, 21, somewhere there. So here is the nature of your ministry, Christian. Here's how you can live in a way that makes the church healthy, or you can refuse to live in a way which rots the church. Your choice. Speak the truth of the gospel into the everyday situations of each other's lives and be content to do no other. You're called to refuse to just land back on the old ways and speak Jesus into each other's lives. To, to seek out and understand how he applies to our lives. Don't worry, if you need some help doing that, that's the rest of the book of Ephesians. He's going to show us the ways that Jesus applies to a whole bunch of different areas of our lives. So that will be a good starter. But we speak gospel truth into each other's lives and are not content not to. Here's a couple of notes here on things that will kill this kind of ministry, things that it can't work with. This can't work if you treat the gospel like the way that you just get from hell to heaven. Now, don't, get, don't hear me wrong. Gospel definitely moves you from hell to heaven, moves you from condemnation to life. Uh, but it is more 
The gospel is transformative for all of life. It is not a truth that was relevant to you on the day that you were saved and then which you kind of go, well, that was nice and keep going. No, it is the truth that continues to transform you throughout your entire walk and which you'll celebrate for all of eternity. It applies to every part of your life. Paul says it right here in this passage. He says, we had to grow up in which ways? In a few ways? In some ways? Does the truth just apply to some parts of our lives? Does the truth apply? We had to grow up on a Sunday, and we had to grow up on a Monday or a Wednesday or a Sunday evening, depending on which gospel community we go to. No, he says, we had to grow up in every way into Christ as the truth is spoken in love into each other's lives. So every part of our lives are to be transformed as we apply the gospel to each other's lives. Do you see it there? Here's another one. This can't work if I treat my life like it's none of your business and vice versa. New Testament churches were a bit different to us in ways that might be worth recapturing, that are worth recapturing. They were meeting in each other's houses. You know, the, the, the church of Acts, we read, met day by day with one another in each other's house. Their lives overlapped. They saw each other in the rubbish moments. They saw each other in the bits where you argue with your wife. They saw each other in the bits where they struggled. Yet we kind of treat the Christian life like this kind of little individualistic pocket thing that's none of your business. Thank you for asking. How can we possibly hope to speak the truth about Jesus lovingly into each other's lives if we're always stuck on hiding our lives from one another. That, 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 that plainly can't work, right? Take this rightly as Paul's call to be open with your brokenness, to be content only to speak gospel into the brokenness of others. Please, if, if, if you get through this sermon today and all you get is a sense that you've got something in your life that you've been hiding and you want to get it off your chest and have gospel spoken into your life, come. Have a talk to me. Have a talk to Crystal. Have a talk to a Christian brother or sister. And as you talk to them, challenge them. Speak Jesus. Talk to Archie. He just waved. Um, I'm not sure if he was actually volunteering. Sorry, Archie. But um, yeah, come and talk to us. Talk to one another. Let's be an open church, not a, not a church of people who come in nice clothes and a nice face that we put on on a Sunday. This is what makes a church healthy. When it is a place where people are equipped by the leaders of that church to speak the truth about Jesus into each other's lives. And they do so relentlessly and lovingly. Church, we need the words that Paul closes this passage with. Because he gives us the opposite. He says, he says, don't walk like you used to walk. And notice the words that he uses are all words about what we're believing, what truths or lies we're believing. He says, we walked in the futility of our minds. We walked in the darkened understanding. We walked in ignorance. So often we turn back to the old ways of thinking, the old answers, the old solutions. You know, we decide to go it alone without Jesus, to figure out our lives without him. And so often when we're faced with each other's problems, Here's, here's, the, here's the, probably the hard challenge here. We're tempted to just regurgitate the world's solutions to the problem. 
rather than going to the powerful words of the gospel that transforms us. Because it's hard, especially when you're starting out in it. It's hard to see, you know, when someone comes to you and says, my marriage is collapsing, help me. It's so hard to see, well, it's very tempting, isn't it, to just say, well, come on, chin up. It's all going to be okay. Just be more loving to your partner. Here's a book on 10 ways to be a more loving partner. Get, get better at the love languages. Nothing wrong with the love languages. Even just, you, you know, you deserve better. There's the world's answer so often of the time, isn't it? Marriage isn't working out, you deserve better. Get out. Find something better. It's so tempting when your brother or sister comes to you and says, my job sucks. I hate my job. I have days where I hate my job, actually. Not, not this job. I was talking about the nursing job. But, you know, maybe. Um, you know, to just say, I'll oh, keep at it. You deserve better. Um, they just don't see the brilliance that's in you, you know? Or when, 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 a, when someone comes to you and says, I, I struggle so much with this area of sin in my life. I, I struggle with, with lust in my life. I, I just can't put it down. Um, you know, we, what do we say? We say, put better accountability in place. Spend more time outside. Go jogging more. Jogging is the answer to sin. Oh, didn't need Jesus after all. He just didn't know about jogging. Just follow these 10 steps. Now, none of those things are like bad things, right? Aside from the leave your partner one. But in the ignorance and the darkened understanding of our minds, we turn away from the one truth that is the big gun and the thing that solves. The thing that fights back the darkness. The thing that's been fighting back the darkness since he died on the cross to defeat the darkness. Church, we have a better word to speak. Like Paul says, we don't need to fall back on ignorance and darkened words. We can be renewed in the spirit of our minds. He says, he says after the likeness of God in true righteousness, you know, the, the actual language there says the righteousness of the truth. Someone says, my marriage is collapsing. Tell me about that. Tell me all about it. Let me come to you with the patience and the gentleness of Christ. And then let's look into the great marriage of Christ and his church. Let's look at the, the husband who dies for his bride, who gave himself up for her and even now is interceding for her. And at the, the church who knows herself to be so loved by him that she can follow him. Let's not believe the lies, the lies that you deserve better. Sorry to break this to you. Don't. Let's remember that you and I, brother and sister, we are eternally recipients of grace alone. Undeserved grace. And that grace gives power to love. Even when the world would say, you know what, you just give up loving and get out of there. My job sucks. Tell me about that, brother and sister. Let's, let's bear with each other's burdens in patience because our Saviour is born with us. And then let's talk about the one who persisted. Even when it was dark and painful for the sake of his people, he went on. Let's talk about the promotion from death to life that you've received. Let's talk about how your workplace 
isn't just a place where you make money, but a place where by the gospel it is transformed into a field for his truth to go out, to communicate his love with others and to serve not just your boss, but him. It must be said, these are conversations if you just chuck that at someone and you walk away and you're like, my job's done, then you've, you've missed the start of the passage about the gentleness and the humility and the walk, walk bearing with one another. This is something you walk with someone in because Christ has loved you. you, know, when, you when your brother or sister comes to you and says, I struggle so much with lust. Brother or sister, tell me about it. Tell me about the struggles, the waves that you've had to go through, the, the continuous, repeated cycle of failure and guilt and reminding yourself of how bad this is and therefore trying to resolve not to do it again. And then let's experience the freedom of actual grace and forgiveness, knowing that you're not motivated by law and by guilt. You're motivated by grace and by faith, by a saviour who's already forgiven you. Let's remember he who is better, who satisfies when the temptations only fail to deliver what they promise. And then certainly, let's meet up, let's talk Jesus, let's be accountable and be accountable to knowing him and know him and know him until our hearts sing his song and we see him as better. Church, let's be a people who are content to speak the truth about Jesus into each other's lives. Let's do that. Let's aim to do that now as we finish. Um, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to remind ourselves of the truth in communion. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you are our saviour king. You are the one who has been patient with us. You are the one who was sent to us, who brought the good news to us, who shepherds us and teaches us. You are the one yeah, who has done all things for us. You've, you've borne with us. You've borne our burdens in patience. You've been eager to maintain unity with people who didn't deserve your eagerness. You have been merciful. You've been humble. You've been gentle. You've loved us. Help us to know your love. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who know your love and bring it to bear in one another's lives. Pray that you would make us a gospel-transformed people by the power of Jesus. Amen.